Good morning, my name is Charity Rodriguez. I'm a member here at Redeemer Odessa. And today we will be reading from Mark 7, 1 through 13. I'll be reading out of the ESV, so I'll give y'all a few minutes to turn. And that's Mark 7, 1 through 13. Okay, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there, oh, and there are many other traditions that, are, that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine, doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. That is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And before I leave you, I wanted to read something. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you. Thank you, Charity. Hey, it's good to be back with you. Um, it's been a couple weeks. I've had, I don't know if y'all have heard, there's this virus going around. Uh, I got it. And I live to tell the tale. So, uh, Matt, Mark, thank you for not letting the church implode in my absence. It's really nice to know that even when I am sick or on vacation that you all are in good hands. Devante, thank you for preaching last week. Matt, thank you for filling in last minute two weeks ago. You guys are tops. Uh, back at my very first church, they had an email chain that the women that were 9,000 years old would send around and uh, like if there were prayer requests in the church. And the lady that was running it would always say, sign it, in my garden of friendship you'll bloom forever. So dilly dilly to you, you guys. Uh, thank you all for, for just stepping in and serving the church. Uh, my name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7 as Charity just read. If you're a guest, would you take a minute and and fill out the connect card that's under uh, your chair. We'd love an opportunity to see how we can serve you, to see how we can connect with you, uh, to see if Redeemer Church of Odessa would be a good fit for you. We can plug you in and get you serving in, in the church and plug you into the life of the body. 
Um, we're going to be in the ESV. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Someone will, will get you a Bible. Matt's, Matt's got them back there. So if you need one, throw your hand up. Um, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. So I've been reading a lot lately. Um, watch a lot of old movies. Not a lot of things current. Uh, there has been a resurgence in cinema and literature and TV in this, in this character development with, a, with the main character, and it's called the anti-hero. An anti-hero is a main character in a story who lacks, like, you'd look at him and you'd be like, okay, this guy's supposed to be the good guy, but he's lacking all of the conventional heroic things, uh, the heroic qualities, heroic attributes, such as, like, idealism or courage or morality, Sometimes their actions appear to be rooted in, in morality or a strong set of values, but they're also like really rooted in the main character's own self-interest, um, or they're like rooted in ways that defy the norms and expectations of them. My grandpa, when I was growing up, he used to watch these westerns, and in the 60s, there's this guy by the name of Clint Eastwood. He starred in these westerns uh, known as the Dollar Trilogy. The movies were... A fistful of dollars, a few dollars more, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, He became kind of the archetype for this anti-hero character. He starts out riding into town on his horse with a noble cause like all the other westerns of the day. Uh, But then his character morphs and he's like out for blood. He's he's revenge-seeking. He starts killing everybody. They're good movies. more recently, and probably one more of you are all familiar with, is a TV show which shall remain nameless because as the lead pastor, I don't necessarily want to endorse this TV show because it's about a high school chemistry teacher that learns he has lung cancer and so he starts dealing drugs in order to pay for his cancer treatments and provide for his family. Um, when it turns out he doesn't actually, his cancer goes into remission, he doesn't actually stop, so he keeps going. You know, he's the anti-hero. All the while, he's got this brother-in-law that works for the DEA that's, like, looking for him, like, trying to figure out who he is. Uh, and for a few seasons, I'm watching it, hoping that this bad drug dealer dude doesn't get caught. That's an anti-hero. Opposite of heroes, right? Are you following me? So now, biblically speaking, there's some people, they're called the Pharisees, we're, we're supposed to see them as these leaders, like they're supposed to be leaders, they're supposed to be people that are trustworthy, they're supposed to be people that, that can be followed. These people are supposed to be servants and spiritual leaders and spiritual guides to the Jewish nation. They have these offices designed to help their people. They're, they're designed to help their people interpret Scripture. They're supposed to speak to God on behalf of the people. They're functioning essentially as pastors and, and priests and servants for the Jews in the first century. But interestingly enough, these dudes are always in conflict with Jesus. They're like super jealous of Jesus because he's gaining popularity but not only is it that he's, that he's growing in popularity, they don't like him because Jesus is confronting the Pharisees with their own misuse and abuse of Scripture. What has happened is instead of serving the nation like they're supposed to, 
The Pharisees have manipulated the Scriptures, manipulated the Bible to their own benefit in order to, uh, to establish themselves culturally and gain some control and use their influence for their own advantage. And Jesus shows up on the scene, and he begins to turn the tables on these guys. Mark is established from the very beginning of, of our walk through Mark, uh, in the very beginning of his letter, who Jesus is and what his purpose is. You can go all the way back to the very first verse in Mark chapter 1, and it's saying Jesus is God. Jesus, the Son of God, has come to restore and redeem sinful humanity back to God. And what we've seen in our walk through Mark is that at almost every turn, there are these Pharisees, and they don't understand who Jesus is. And because they don't understand, and because Jesus is threatening their position in society, they started plotting against Jesus' life. So the last two weeks, we saw Jesus feed a great crowd, uh, a giant crowd of, of people with some little kid's happy meal. This kid shows up on the scene with five loaves of bread and two fish. He's like carbo-loading, apparently. Um, and Jesus feeds this crowd of 5,000 people, 5,000 men. That doesn't include the women and the children. So it's like close to 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. I think I said fishes a minute ago. That's not actually a word. Um, then in our text last week, Jesus sees his disciples in their boat trying to get back to the other side of the sea. And they're having a hard time because of the storm, the wind, the waves. And Jesus walks on water and gets in the boat with them and calms the storm with a word. This is the second time Jesus has calmed a storm on this lake for these seasoned boaters. Then they get to their destination, they step off the boat, and the crowds gather around him, and people come just so they could see Jesus. Just so they could see and touch Jesus and be healed by Jesus. So many people were healed, it says at the end of Mark chapter 6, because Jesus cares about people. Man, if you're experiencing difficulty, Jesus cares. If you're sick, Jesus cares. If you're struggling in your marriage or your singleness or your parenting or your job or your life, Jesus cares. The question that I want to place before you as we continue our walk through Mark today is this. If you know that Jesus cares about you, does that change anything for you? Jesus cares about you, but do you care about Jesus? Culturally, and I don't mean American or Western culture, I mean church culture, my fear is that church culture doesn't really care. I think we like a lot of the benefits of Jesus, but a lot of times we don't actually like Jesus. Culturally speaking, you know, Ambivalent church culture, we sound more like the world than the Bible. So, do you care? Maybe a better way of asking this is, when you consider the person and work of Jesus, when you consider Christ, does that move you in any way? Does it stir your affections for him? or for his word, or for his people? 
Or has it become something you've heard so much that you just remain flat unfazed by the love and grace of Jesus? I want to jump into this text together this morning. I also want to say this. It is extremely possible this morning that some of you are going to have your toes stepped on. I'm not out to get you. I believe the Lord has positioned us in this text, in this moment, today, for a reason. So I want you to know that as your pastor, especially if you're a covenant member of this church, I love you. Sometimes loving you means having to say hard things to you. This text is challenging. This text is convicting. And honestly, some of you don't want to be challenged and some of you don't want to be convicted. Because again, we like a lot of the benefits of Jesus until he makes any demands on our life. And this is one of those moments, this is one of those texts that calls us to consider as a church and as Christians why we do what we do. So let me invite you to do that this morning. Do you really love Jesus? Or are you just checking boxes? Do you really love Jesus or are you just trying to make yourself feel better, trying to be good enough, trying to do the absolute bare minimum so that you can get into heaven without being totally inconvenienced by Christ in the church? Do you really love Jesus or are you just playing churchy games? Let's pray. Lord, we need you this morning. Lord, thank you for the reminder that even the best-looking among us, Lord, even those of us that appear that we have it all together are so incredibly sinful and broken. Show us this morning. Remind us of your nearness. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of the cross, Lord, and convict us where we take that for granted. Lord, I pray that you would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, show us where we have just missed it. Help us to trust you. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, uh, Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So these Pharisees are back, and they bring these other guys with them, known as the scribes. A scribe, it's like the first century Jewish version of a lawyer. So they interpret the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, for the people. These guys are aware of Jesus, because at this point, everybody is aware of Jesus. Um, he's been on the scene casting out demons and healing people and doing a lot of really cool, miraculous things. 
and teaching with power and authority, the text says. And so the Pharisees are there, and they've realized that they don't have anything to hook Jesus with. Like, they can't catch him in a contradiction. So they go after his friends. They're like, hey, bro, Jesus, your disciples, they're nasty. Like, they don't wash their hands before they eat. Why? And why aren't you saying anything to them? Aren't you supposed to be some kind of, like, example of the law for us to follow Jesus? And look at what verse 3 says. It's not actually a part of the law. It's more religious tradition. The text calls it traditions of the elders. It's more of tradition that you, like, have to scrub your hands a certain way. So what has happened is going all the way back to the time of Moses, a few thousand years before Jesus comes onto the scene, God gives Moses the law to show the Jewish people their need for God and to protect them and to set them apart from the pagan nations around them. God tells them, be holy, be set apart because I am holy. I am your God, and you are my people, therefore you should look different. And so then somewhere along the way, these men, these Pharisees, they started putting what I'm going to call a hedge around the law of God. Like, God's law is not enough, so what if we extended it out further so it's harder to break? So, for example, when God tells the people, do no work on the Sabbath because that is a holy day, the Pharisees then established what they thought it meant to do no work. You are only allowed to take X number of steps on the Sabbath. If you take one step more than this between sunrise and sunset, if you take one more step, then you're guilty of sin. Thus saith the Lord, saith we. And they did all kinds of stuff like this. And none of it was taking into account the nature, the character, the heart, the intentions of God the Father. So in our encounter today, the disciples hadn't actually broken any laws. They just didn't do what the Pharisees expected them to do. And so now we've seen Jesus go against cultural and religious expectations of him. And now his disciples are doing the same thing. And these Pharisees, they are upset They're upset because if common working class people like the disciples of Jesus start rejecting the traditions, then the Pharisees will then lose their hold on society. For centuries, centuries, these Pharisees have used the scriptures to establish the authority in society and manipulate people. Initially, when God gave these laws about washing, the intent was to remind the people of their uncleanliness before God. But the source of our uncleanliness is not anything outside of us. It doesn't happen by what we touch. The source of our uncleanliness is inside of our own hearts. Our problem, our sin problem, is not outside of us. It is inside of us. So look at how Jesus responds. Verse 6, And he said to them, he being Jesus, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So Jesus is calling them out. He says, you hypocrites. 
Another word for hypocrite is fake, two-faced, saying one thing and doing another. In spiritual terms, it's saying you believe something and then your life looks completely different. Saying you believe one thing, saying you follow Jesus and your life looks completely different by, uh, about what you say you believe and about who you say you follow. These Pharisees say the right things about God, but their hearts are so ungodly. It is a religion for them. It is not a relationship with God. It is all for show. So Jesus says, quoting the prophet Isaiah, that their worship is purposeless and God rejects it because they don't care about who God is. They only care about themselves. They abandon the word of God and hold only to their traditions. And look, before we think this is a first century Jewish problem, this happens all of the time in today's church. Man, maybe you're coming from an established church tradition, and if you're not, or if you're not a Christian, or if you're not an American Christian, uh, I'm a little embarrassed to even give some examples about what Christians in the West fight over. But here we go. People will fight over the color of carpet, or music styles, or preferences, or names of ministries, or how we should dress in the church, and on and on and on we could go. And honestly, none of it, or perhaps very little of it, aids in actually reaching people with the gospel. Instead, it makes us look like childish fools in front of people who don't know Christ. The question we have to answer then when we're making decisions for ourselves or for our churches is this. Are we text-driven? Are we motivated by the Bible? Or are we tradition-driven? We're going to do this because this is the way it's always been done. Do we do these things because the Bible says we should? Or because our preferences, our wants, our comforts are driving us to do them? How you answer that question is crucial. I'll show you why in a minute. Another way it happens is this. And we say we're Christians and we choose to live in ongoing, willful, habitual, unrepentant sin. Another way it happens is that we say we're Christians and we live lives characterized by ambivalence towards Jesus. So Jesus calls them out of their hypocrisy and then gives them an example of it. Verse 9, he says, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, meaning that is given to God, then you no longer permit them to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things do you do. Verse 9, Jesus is essentially saying, like, you guys are trying to make yourselves gods. In this example, Jesus is showing them how they contradict themselves, how they contradict the Bible. Jesus says, the law says, honor your father and your mother, which is good, right? But then you allow somebody to bypass the law with a, with a loophole. Imagine with me for a second that you're a first century Jew, 
Okay? So that means you are culturally obligated to care for your parents. You're to honor them. You're to love them. You're to care for your parents until they die. So you see your dad. He has a need. We'll call it a financial need for the sake of the illustration. And you have the ability to meet this financial need. But you say, Dad, it's Corbin. I gave this money to God. This, all my money belongs to God, Dad. Sorry, I can't help you. By saying this, the son, according to the tradition of the Pharisees, is now released from any obligation he has to his parents. Thus, he can ignore the law. So the Pharisees would do this all the time so they didn't have to be inconvenienced by the law. So instead of following the law they say they love and value and care so much for, with their lifestyles, they are actually rejecting the law and rejecting God. There's a term that we need to understand that paints uh, the character of the Pharisees, and if we're not careful, it will characterize you and me in the church, and it is called legalism. Rule following for the sake of rule following. Trusting in ourselves, in our own external righteousness, and never ever getting to God. Legalism makes the word of God obsolete or void in our lives. So Jesus sets the record straight for the crowd that has gathered around him. Verse 14, it says, And he called the people to him, And he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters his heart... Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So let me explain this to you. Jesus teaches the crowd and then explains what all this means to his disciples. I say this all the time. I want to say it again here. It is possible to do a bunch of good, godly things with wrong, sinful motives. It is entirely possible to look nice on the outside and be dead inside. And not like in the 2021, I'm dead inside sort of angsty way, but like spiritually dead, headed to hell type dead. This is one of the most important things in the Bible. So pay attention to it. Jesus says defilement is not about what is inside of you, but what comes out of you. It's not about what you put in, but what comes out. When I was in third grade, uh, we had this goofy kid in my class. Um, You know, the type of kid that will do anything for a laugh. His grandpa gave him four quarters for his birthday. You know what this kid did? He swallowed them all on a dare. So his mom was like freaking out. I'm not going to tell you who dared him to do it. He may be a pastor or something. Anyways, uh, that's not important right now. So this kid's mom was like freaking out. And we all, my whole class, got a lesson in 
digestion and how the body works. Eventually, I do think those quarters came out. I, I know that kids survived because I saw them in a Hobbs Allsup's not that long ago. So, um, yeah, food ends up in your tummy, gets digested, gets expelled. Sin, on the other hand, starts from within. It proceeds from your heart, produces all manner of defilement and death. That is the problem with humanity. Our problem is not what we do. Our problem is who we are. Our hearts, as John Calvin says, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. And defilement is inside of us, and eventually it shows itself. Verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Daniel Aiken says this, Inevitably, sin's root will produce sin's fruit. And it is an ugly, destructive crop to behold. And this, in this selective list, these evil actions that flow from a sinful heart always result in sorrow, harmful behavior, and death. Listen, we tend to focus on the fruit of sin. We tend to focus on our behavior. And we think that the solution oftentimes is found in us. Like, man, if I would just stop doing all of this, all of these things, all of my problems would go away. But here's what you need to hear. You cannot do it. You cannot fix yourself. You are so broken and sinful that you need somebody else to do it for you. Jesus Christ came to die and give you a new heart and give you a new life. You are so incredibly sinful. Even in your best moments, you are utterly helpless. The goal of Christianity is not behavior modification. You are capable of so much evil. All kinds of evil. And you need a Savior to come and rescue you. And here's the danger. I think a lot of you would agree with me. I think a lot of you would agree with me that, yes, I'm a sinner. And then I think a lot of you live like it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, I've done some stuff, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Yeah, I lie sometimes, or yeah, I look at pornography sometimes, or yeah, I don't ever read my Bible or pray, but God's got me. No. The point of the Christian life is that we are being transformed into the image of the Son moment by moment by moment. And that doesn't just happen. 
You have to die to yourself daily. You have to take up your cross, die to yourself, die to your sinful desires, meditate on the word of God, have fellowship with God, and, and this is a huge and, you need fellowship with his bride, the church. Man, for some of you, you live like the things of God are optional. You live like the church exists for you and for you alone, and you can come and worship whenever you feel like it, or you can squeeze it into your schedule. Man, some of you want community. Some of you say you want community, and then you won't plug in and invest anywhere. Some of you feel disconnected, And so to combat that, you show up 10 minutes after the service starts and leave as soon as it's over and don't really want to connect. Man, some of you view community and accountability as an option as opposed to a necessity. Man, showing up 50% of the time or less for a lot of you is not the goal. Christ wants it all. Not your leftovers. Christ wants it all. Are you just checking boxes? Man, we're, as a church, if you're a covenant member, we're asking you to leverage your time, your talents, and your resources for the sake of other people. And some of you have not had a meaningful, gospel-centered conversation with anyone else ever. You don't leverage your time. You spend all of your time scrolling social media, and then you say, man, there's just not enough time for me in the day to read my Bible and pray or spend time with anybody else. Man, some of you want to be discipled, and I think that's a good and godly desire, and I wish every single one of you had that desire to be discipled by someone further along in the faith. That would be a game changer for our little church if we were actually pursuing one another with intentionality. So yes, let me encourage you. Pursue discipleship. This is an encouragement for you to be bold and to ask somebody directly to walk with you. And be bold. Ask somebody if you can walk with them. Ask somebody if you can read the Bible with them. Because of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, you have everything you need. Even if you feel like you're lacking, the Lord will supply. Look, what if the first fruits of our free time were committed to Christ and his church? Specifically the church where you're a member of. We talked about this in my community group on Wednesday, but like, um, I don't understand why some of you will attend Bible studies at other churches and Bible studies at parachurch organization type things, but not lead anything here. Or not meet with people in your group for the same type of goal. We ask you to leverage your resources. You know, as Christianity gets more and more marginalized and pushed to the fringes in our society, the greatest apologetic of the church is going to have to be biblical hospitality. And some of you don't want to have people in your homes for the sake of the gospel. Some of you have been coming to this church since the very beginning and have not given a dime to the work of the ministry. Man, our desire is to be a church that is deeply committed to the word of God and prayer. 
And so many of you know more about your Enneagram number and your love language than, and you sound like modern pop psychologists as opposed to believers deeply committed to the Word of God. And if you don't agree with me, ask yourself this question. When I make decisions, are they rooted in Scripture? Are they vetted against the Word of God and with other believers? Or am I just doing what feels good in the moment? Man, some of you want things from church and your church experience, but you won't contribute anything to bringing those things about. And some of you appear to have it all together, and your heart is far from God. It is possible to look like you have it all together, to show up, to attend faithfully, to serve, to give, and it be rooted in you and not in Christ. What is going on in your heart? That is where the rubber meets the road. Man, if you're 25% committed to Christ and to the church and the things of God, then I'd argue you are on very, very shaky ground. If you claim to be a Christian and you never, ever read your Bible, if you never pray, if you aren't meaningfully connected to Christ and his church, you may think you're saved and you may not be. And I say that because I love you. I don't want anybody to perish apart from Christ. Man, if you're having a hard time fitting Jesus into your schedule, you have too much on your schedule. Your schedule's an idol. On the other hand, if you're like 100% in tithing and attendance and serving and you still have no real tangible relationship with Jesus, the same thing is true for you as well. If you're more worried about what everybody else thinks of you as opposed to what Christ thinks and says, that's an issue. Listen, before it sounds like I'm throwing stones, I'm not because I'm in this boat with you. I mean, and honestly, as the lead pastor of this church, the issues in this church do fall back to me at some level. Because of how wicked the human heart is, we all need Christ's grace in our life. This isn't me up here saying, church, get on my level. Because I'm like the chief of sinners. And I need the cross. I need the cross of Christ for the forgiveness of sins just as much as any one of you. Jesus Christ, knowing my sin, knowing your sin, willingly went to the cross, motivated by the glory of God the Father and love for his creation. He went to the cross to redeem sinful humanity, to redeem your sinful, broken life back to himself. In him, you have an inheritance. Man, but you have to have faith in Christ that he is sufficient for you, that Christ is better, that Jesus can and will fulfill the deepest desires of your heart. And at that level, it is a need for a Savior. But listen, grace doesn't give you a license to continue in sin. Grace doesn't give you a license to take the cross for granted. Grace doesn't allow you to sit and consume when you're feeling like you need something. This is not some like spiritual grocery store. 
You can't claim to be a Christian and have the person and work of Jesus not motivate you to want to grow in Christ. Christ's cross and resurrection calls you to faith and repentance. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you are being shown your sin and your need for Jesus. Man, and that's God's grace on your life. Turn towards Christ in faith and repentance and stop playing churchy games. Are you honoring Christ with your life? That's it. Are you honoring Christ with your life? Let's pray.